Hey, Heartbreakers. Welcome back to another Breakdown Bonus episode. I'm here with co-worker Justin. What up? And we're going to be breaking down this week's episode. And just a heads up, at the very end of this little breakdown with me and Justin, I'm going to air a conversation I had with a psychiatrist named Dr. David Pewter. We have a little Q&A about how factitious disorder plays out in relationships specifically. But you can also check out the episode description for all of his socials. And also, I will link a podcast episode where he specifically goes into factitious disorder in extensive detail and also talks to somebody who was diagnosed with that. But for now, let's get into the breakup stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, when you saw the title of this episode, what was your immediate assumption? It would be used to keep their relationship going. If you're lying about something like that, it's because you felt like the writing was on the wall, the relationship was ending, and this was a last ditch effort to like continue a relationship. That is obviously not healthy. So that was kind of the first thought, at least just from the title of the episode, you knew it was going to be a lot of lying and it was going to be one side of a relationship being way more committed to the relationship, but committed because of false things. I didn't expect it to be such a one-sided relationship. Like when I just saw like the TikTok screen grab from the video I was sent, it was like, my wife lied about having mm-hmm. cancer. I didn't expect it to be so much so it wasn't a real marriage. That for me was the biggest plot twist in this interview it was like, oh, this was just a way to make sure that B's parents didn't get this insurance claim. Because you would like think if you're the side that's lying about the situation and obviously Obviously, it was brought up numerous times like that. She was really sick and puking and, and mm. not feeling good. So maybe that played a part of it. You would be trying to do everything in your power to make that person happy that they made that decision to stay there. And so to me, like, I don't know, you would try to be romantic and all that. If the other side's not wanting it anyway, then that's like a point of contention already. Yeah, that was what I was trying to get at because I was like, okay, so this really was only romantic for a very short amount of time. This relationship it was, was a summer fling. It was a summer fling and yeah. that turned into a marriage. <laughs> and well, <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Don't you hate it when that happens? When you turn in from friends to this? That's an interesting point where it's like, if you felt like you were getting more out of the relationship than you were giving, so from B's standpoint, you really think you'd be doing everything in your power to make sure that you could ride this out as long as possible. And I think that goes to show just how serious factitious disorder really is because maybe on some level, she really felt like she was the patient in this relationship. There were a lot of times where like, you know, the walking the dogs and coming back with broken or dislocated things. I was like, oh my God. Again, I don't fully understand the disorder and all that stuff. So I'm like, wait, are you just going out and hurting yourself to like keep up this facade? How are you like, why? That was the part that I was very much like, obviously there's something more going on mentally with that than just lying about the situation. You'll even hear at the end of this episode when I aired the interview with Dr. David Pewter, when I told him that B was breaking her bones and that was one of the main parts of her alleged factitious disorder, he was like, she was breaking her bones? That's like a really serious thing. Like it's not easy to break your bones. Oh, I know. And I'm sure very painful too like to do it over and over. So that was the part that I was very much like, wow, there's some more. So let's back things up a little bit to the beginning of this relationship because you always talk about how you want the honeymoon period to end as soon as possible in any relationship. And it's almost like this one, like it would have really benefited from that, from the honeymoon period ending so quickly because Mm -hmm. they moved in together like almost instantly. It made it harder to get out of the relationship. Have you lived with anyone else before Nicole or is she the first person you've lived with? Yeah, so I lived with roommate, like guy roommates, not another like female and and I was already kind of living with Nicole at the time like our relationship she was working six months down here and six months up north because in the golf industry like weather up north changes and so they can't golf all the time so she was like bouncing back and forth so for like six months out of the year I was living in a house with two other guy roommates and one of their girlfriends never somebody that I was like romantically involved with yeah that's something I'm really afraid of this really is like worst case scenario Mm -hmm. but like if you ever wanted to get out of the relationship or 
if just things were off between. Like you can't get out. Like that's yeah, your living go. situation. I actually had a friend call me a couple months ago and like her and her boyfriend were going through a breakup. They were living together. Now she's like essentially like, I gotta get out of here. Like and I don't know go. where I'm gonna live. And it's a really scary thing to have to figure out how to untangle. From this podcast, they moved to a place where you don't really have, for me, not saying Nicole and I would ever have that situation, but like I have my uncle down in St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. So like you, you start thinking like, okay, like if I did have to get out, where would I go? You know, like you have family here, like that kind of stuff. You at least have a backup. But if you moved, like if I lived in like, I don't know, San Diego, I don't know anybody in San Diego. So what am I going to buy? Like a hotel room for the night? Probably what you'd have Book to do. Book yourself into the Four Seasons. Yeah. Live in luxury. Go go somewhere awesome. But yeah, so that, that adds an extra layer of like, can you really do that to your thought process of trying to get out of something? Literally, where do you go? Okay, so we find out from B that she says that she's got three months to live. And she did what any best friend would do in the situation, not B, the interviewee. Mm-hmm. She was like, okay, I'm here for you. And she talked a lot about the end of the episode that she made a lot of concessions for that relationship and had to work through it in therapy. Even though, again, this is a really extreme example. I feel like me and you specifically, like we're people pleasers. We make mm-hmm. a lot of concessions for people to just like keep the peace. Mm-hmm. So was there ever a time where you really overstepped your own personal boundaries where you felt like I should have done that for this person, whether it was a friend or romantic relationship? Part of growing up, and I've talked about this in general, is like once you find your person, you start not pulling away from your friend group, but you stop going out as much. And that causes frustration in the friend group that's not going through that yet. Not in my relationship with Nicole, but in a relationship before that, we were starting to do like the whole like, oh, we'd rather just stay home. We'd rather hang out. And I was still very much like, well, I don't want our friends to be mad at us. So how about I go out and you stay in since you don't want to like that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So I would say that relationship really suffered from me trying to make sure the friend group was happy and I was still going out with them, but also staying in. And then when I met Nicole, I was like, you know what? You guys can be mad. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I feel like when you get into the right relationship, there are certain concessions that are healthy. Like there is a natural pull from friends for our interviewee. She was literally bending over backwards to keep be alive. And to be fair, like she literally thought she was going to die. I don't think I ever had a situation where I was like doing, like you said, I'll do a lot of things just to keep the peace. I do Mm -hmm. it all the time here in the office. But if it actually inconvenienced me to a point that like, I don't know, it's going to keep me at the office for another four or five hours or something like that. Okay. I was trying to be nice, but now I can't. I actually can't be nice. So like Mm -hmm. there is a level of it. And it seems like for her, she didn't have that level, like was just willing to go above and beyond. And again, I get that because Mm -hmm. like you think this person's dying. I'm not a therapist, so I can't really classify that as codependency. And based off of what I've heard, I don't think it's codependency, but that's something that I've had to work through. Other people's discomfort makes you uncomfortable. So you do whatever you can to like bend over backward. Let's just say I'm I'm a therapist, but I'm not. (laughs) I wouldn't classify this as that. I think it was more of like coming from a generous place. And also like she did say she had a close friendship with B. And so of course you're going to do that for any person that you care about. For me, I think a lot of girls can actually relate to this. I was dating a guy towards the end of college who never really wanted to put an effort towards like going out and doing things. I feel like he just wanted to come over to like my apartment and hang. Mm-hmm. And that to a point, like I felt sort of not used, but I was like, well, you're just coming over and we're drinking wine and sitting on the couch and make it out. I felt kind of cheapened by that. And I expressed that to him. And then he shortly ended the relationship after that. I did that for probably three months. I just made all these concessions where it's like, I liked him so much that I was willing to do whatever it took to keep him around. Mm-hmm. And then it didn't end well. Our interviewee, she eventually gets suspicious and she's like, okay, I'm out, mm-hmm. which is brave to call your partner a liar. So have you ever caught somebody in a lie that you're like, okay, I feel confident enough in this to be like, <laughs> you're lying. You're lying. I don't think Was, so. Did you have a girlfriend that was also lying about cancer? Um, no, I definitely feel like I had an ex that could have possibly been cheating on me. I still don't have it confirmed. There's nothing that's concrete evidence, but I'm pretty confident. What made what you think that she was cheating? It was more like the person that I had concerns 
about. They kept being like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, we're just friends, blah, blah, blah. But then, like, once we did break up, they got together pretty quickly. And so it was like, okay, were you doing this and that? And again, it was a weird situation where I had left for college. The person I was dating was back home. Mm. Like, you, you try to not assume things, but it, yeah. it's like, well, if I piece this together, like, you got together a week and a half after we broke up. It was a week and a half enough, other than maybe the sadness of us breaking up, although she ended it, so mm-hmm. who knows? But other than that, did that really make the connection or was mm-hmm. the connection already there? Well, what I thought was so interesting about this story in particular is I think there's a moment where she's like, okay, I need to get out, but I don't know if she explicitly was like, I think you're lying about having cancer. I think she just ended up bouncing. Again, I'd probably be in the same situation where I was like, the person doesn't want me at the doctor's appointments. Okay, I won't go. They don't want me looking at the medicine. Okay, I won't. But after a while, that part raises some flags in me. Is You're telling me all these things and you're telling me you're better and not better and sick and not sick. And so I feel like even the baby appointments that Nicole and I are going to, the doctor, like, obviously it's 100% about her and what she's going through and what the baby's developing and all that stuff. But they also are like, here's some things you can do to me Mm -hmm. to help. So from like a cancer caregiver, maybe the doctors could be like, oh, you're the person caring for her. If she has this problem, you need to do this. This is how you help. That's where my mindset would be is like, I need to be there so I can learn what to do when you're having a sickness or getting hurt or, you know, how can I get involved and help? Yeah, it makes you wonder. And obviously I wouldn't know this because I've never been a caretaker for someone, but what rights do caretakers have? She mentioned when she found out, she found out through the godmother who found out from a nurse who worked at the hospital who flagged her for Munchausen's. Don't you think if you're the caretaker of someone, you have some kind of right to know if they're being flagged You for- would probably, if it's like your parents or a relative, like I think healthcare laws and stuff, like I think you get put onto like a list of people that can get your medical mm-hmm. records. But you would think if you're a caretaker, like you would probably fall under that list too. If Nicole was like, hey, I have whatever and I've got three months to live. And then we go to the doctor and on that list, when you fill out the info and she only puts her info and not mm. me as like a person that can receive her info, I'm going to be like, wait, whoa, whoa. I need to be able to see that too. So I know what the hell to get you if you're having problems. In that situation, I would understand not asking, but being a little like, what the hell? Like if, if I'm supposed to be helping out, then wouldn't you want me at these meetings, these doctor's visits so that I can understand what's going on and can provide help in times of you not doing great? She wasn't allowed to go to any of those appointments. Right. So it's like, did the doctors even know that our interviewee was involved? Yeah, but it makes you wonder, like if you called up a hospital or called up the doctor being like, hey, does my partner go here? I don't even think they're allowed to share that. If you're not on there, yeah, if you're not on there because I've been going to the doctors and we've been going a lot because of the baby, like there's things they are and aren't allowed Mm -hmm. to share with you. Even at those doctor's appointments, they have me go sit in another room and they have Nicole, I'm sure for more uncomfortable questions that maybe she wouldn't be willing to answer with me around. You know, like they do still make sure all that stuff can happen and you can share information that you need. I feel like even the doctors would be like, you know, don't you want somebody as your person that's getting this information so they can help you? Well, that's what I asked the doctor at the end of this episode. I was like, if you think that maybe someone's lying about their medical condition, like, like how do you even find that out? And he's like, the only thing you can do is like suggest that you go to counseling together because you can't find out like on your own if you're not on the list. And yeah. it doesn't sound like our interview I mean. yeah. was on the list. That's like really scary that you yeah. are living with this person. And if they don't want you to know their medical history, like you're not allowed to know. Yeah, you're not allowed to know. And I see both perks of it. Like if you don't want somebody to know, obviously it's your private health information, but like, dang. I know. She's still married. She's with a new partner and she eventually ends up cheating on that partner, which I thought was so fascinating because we talk all the time about, oh my gosh, our interview, we got cheated on and that sucks for them. But this was such an interesting other side because we never really hear the inner workings of like <laughs> why people choose to cheat. Mm-hmm. And this was such an eloquent way of phrasing why somebody made a mistake in their life. And I thought that was 
just really self-aware. So she said that she cheated on this person because she didn't feel safe in that relationship because of her history with B that she worked through in therapy. And I think that is proof that cheating is never about the person that gets cheated on. We talk about all okay. the time about how it feels like it's about you. Like yeah. you're not providing something in the relationship. Mm-hmm. She even admitted it. She was like, it wasn't about the person I was with. I mean, she said that she didn't feel safe. She didn't feel supported, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. I'm not attracted to you. But was the, yeah, was those safe and supported because of that person not doing something? It's on the cheater always. Mm-hmm. You try to be like, okay, what was I doing wrong? How did I do this wrong? No, you. it's nothing you can do. It's the other person looking for something that they're not getting or if they're not getting it, then it's also they didn't vocalize it to you for that. Mm-hmm. Or didn't have the tools because she yeah. said she didn't even know it was related to her history with B that made her feel that way. not supported in this relationship. She's like, it wasn't self-sabotage. These were feelings that were coming up because of the experience. But when I was hearing it, I felt like I could put so many of situations that I've been in in relationships where I'm like, oh my gosh, I did that too, but it was because of self-sabotaging, which I mean, maybe is because of things that I've experienced in past relationships that make you want to self-sabotage. Which is something I have a hard time grasping. The really? Self, the self-sabotage thing. I understand it on paper, but I don't believe, or if I have, I, I don't have the mental capacity to to realize it yet. I don't believe there's ever been a time where like I did something in a relationship to self-sabotage or do something horrible. You know what I mean? Let me make the headline. Justin has never- <laughs> Never what? self-sabotage. Justin, once again, Justin is perfect, has uh, never no. had a flaw ever. <laughs> no, but I don't, I can't grasp it from like a personal standpoint. So me relating my experience to our interviewee's yeah. experience was we both said similar things when I was going through my mind of like, why did I self-sabotage in that relationship? It was because we both knew it was wrong, right. but we couldn't quite pinpoint what it was. So okay. for her, it was not feeling safe in the relationship because she didn't feel supported because of her mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. And for me, I self-sabotage. When I say self-sabotage, I mean, it brought out the worst in me. So the worst coming out of her was cheating. cheating. For me, the worst was coming out was like vocalize my insecurities about the relationship, okay. not with the intention that they would end it. It was a way to like prepare them for the end. Sure. So I would vocalize, I don't really like this and I don't really like this and I don't really mm-hmm. like this. And he would just like, shut up and just enjoy the relationship. Like, why can't we just date for a Be couple happy. months? Yeah. yeah. And I was like, but I know it's going to end. Mm-hmm. And so instead of just being mature and ending it, I chose to stay in a relationship because I wanted the good and I wasn't ready for the bad. So that's what the self-sabotaging is for me. Again, I'm not a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I did have a conversation with someone the other day who listens to the podcast and it was so flattering because sometimes I do feel like I sound stupid on here. They're like, wow, you sound like you have like an unofficial degree in psychology. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) It's not how I feel at all. You're like, thanks, I think. But I will say something I thought the guest that you had on was brave to say, but I totally understood what she meant when she was talking about getting into it. Like, oh, it's only three months. She's going to die. It's not forever. That is like a thinking that I would have in that situation, which I feel sounds so terrible. No, I feel like everybody felt like that when we listened. It's only 90 days. The one thing I was trying to grasp, and I don't know if I asked enough on this interview, she did say that she was sick. She was like throwing up. So I guess that makes sense because I'm like, if someone's going to die, you're not just bopping around going to Publix. Right. You look like you're dying. Yeah. So, but then- And that's where, that's where like when she was saying she was like sick and puking and and doing all that, like, okay, that makes a little more sense. Like I would be like, fact checks out, like you're not looking great and that would make sense in this situation because the end in this conversation is happening. So. And also the godmother who confirmed it at first. Before we get into that, what I thought the interviewee was so brave for saying was I was just waiting for her to die. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it, all of that. All, she said it numerous times and every time I was like, ooh, out of context, you sound horrible. Out of context, yeah. But, but like I in context, we're kind of like, well, we get it. Girl Boss Town on TikTok. Do you follow her? I don't. She's the PR girl. No, she was talking about that today. She was like, the things that would put people who haven't lost a parent into a coma. And she said, oh. the real relief that you feel when you 
your loved one has passed, it's like you feel so much lighter. My wife's grandma, when we first started dating, her grandpa had passed away and he was sick and so she was taking care of him and I literally only knew them for like maybe a month before this whole thing happened. I remember when he passed because he was so sick, everyone was obviously sad, but it was like, okay, he passed. It's over. And she was able to like go on walks again on the beach. Just seeing that was like, a, oh man, like I could see where a potential like relief feeling kind of comes into a situation. Which I'm sure for anyone who has had to have been taken care of, the interview, we mentioned this in the episode too. You don't want to feel like a burden to the people around you. Yeah. And I think maybe a hard truth is not that you're a burden, but you are a responsibility. And we all have varying levels of responsibilities in our life. And mm-hmm. this is just a greater responsibility. And sometimes that can feel burdensome. And that's a massive fear of mine. Like I never want- like, You need to unlearn yeah. your people pleasing. Yeah, yeah. That like, like if I were sick with whatever- and and Nicole was having to take care of me, especially now with like her being pre- like that would be like no, just literally divorce me. Like don't. <laughs> <laughs> when Justin would rather get divorced than, than need help, than need just help. like divorce me and put me in like a storage unit somewhere. Like we'll figure it out. Like <laughs> not not Nicole booking you into Cube Smart. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Cube Smart. Wait, yeah. Use code Justin <laughs> for twenty percent off your divorce. <laughs> that would be wild. But yeah, so like that I but I couldn't. I, Ah, that's the part that I, uh, if I ever get sick like that, that's the part that's going to be a problem. Feeling helpless would be horrible. I need to Google this because I mentioned this when we were recording the first episode and I cut it out because I sounded dumb. But let me, let me Google this real quick. Husbands that leave their wives when they get sick. There's a statistic on this. There's like a big thing. Okay. I swear I've seen this on Twitter Mm -hmm. somewhere. This is from cmlaw1.com. It says a study revealed that 21% of seriously ill women were divorced compared to to only 3% of seriously ill men. Justin's going to be a part of that 3%, yeah. but, <laughs> yeah. but it's because he's well, the one filing. So the, so the guys are leaving the women when they get sick. That is, what, is okay. that what that says? When compared to a control group's divorce rate of merely 12%, it's clear that serious disease causes husband to divorce while actually increasing wow. the likelihood that wives will stay. So maybe you should get sick because wow. Nicole will never leave now you. you can't leave me because I'm sick. I swear. I was like, I've seen this statistic floating around where it's like when women get sick, the dudes leave. What's that phrase? <laughs> Correlation does not equal causation. Uh, I don't know if that applies to that. People say that. I'm like, okay. Yeah. But numbers, 21%. Yeah. That's what it says. That's messed up. Also, I guess it's, I'm a hypocrite <laughs> for saying like, if I got sick, I'd want them to leave me. So. Justin, keeping that 3% strong. Yeah. This is a big question. Oh, for no. you, you want someone to leave you if you get sick. <laughs> right. Okay. I don't even know how to phrase this without not sounding like an asshole. Just say hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> what do you think is the threshold I need to get out of this relationship? This yeah. is too much for me to handle. It changes. Like we'd almost have to have a graph. Bottom line is like how long the relationship been compared to how high the problem is. Mm-hmm. And so the how high the problem is at the beginning of the relationship, the leaving is so high up. And as it goes, it gets less and less and less. You know what I mean? You like, can't see this, but Justin's like creating a line graph <laughs> with his hands. It would get less and less and less. Like the longer you're together, I feel like mm-hmm. the less likelihood of whatever it is you get out of. But like, mm-hmm. again, you're a month into a relationship and the person gets sick. Is your whole relationship now just you caring for that person that is sick when you met them a month ago? Actually, I saw a really beautiful TikTok about this. This will lead into my point, but it was this couple that got together when they were fairly young, mm-hmm. early 20s maybe, and three months into the relationship, she found out that she had cancer or some kind of serious illness and he stayed. 
they've been together for like two, three years. Wow. To me, what that tells me, and this is just because I'm somewhat of a hopeless romantic, <laughs> is I do feel like there's somebody out there for everybody. And I do feel like when you know, you know, this is just, I've never felt like this. So this is literally just me <laughs> speculating. Don't come for me. <laughs> I feel like when you meet that person, there's no challenge that would be too great. But mm-hmm. I feel like for the average person, like if they do get really sick, it's like less on you. It's more of like, okay, maybe you need to be with your family during this time. Maybe they really need to take care of you and spend if it's three months. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If I've met the love of my life and it was like the greatest three months of my life, I'd be like, you know what, Tommy, I'll stick it out. The stories that always get me are the ones, and, and I feel like I see a, a video of it where the girl and the guy got together and then there was a horrible accident and it and it goes both ways, but like the guy or the girl gets paralyzed from like the neck down and then their wedding is like the person like essentially being strapped to the other person so they can have their first dance and it's like, oh, that's so sweet. I could see why the person that didn't get paralyzed in that relationship might consider finding another relationship well, it's or, an or added, getting out of it. It's an added responsibility and yeah. people have different capacities for that kind of responsibility. Mm. That's an added emotional labor and physical labor if you've got to carry them around and that's why it is so beautiful when we see them because it's like, wow, this person really has made sacrifices because they love that person so and much. I don't know from a doctor's standpoint, like, like if you're getting married, maybe beforehand you talked about having kids. I don't know if you can have kids after mm-hmm. something like that happens. So like your whole mindset of how that relationship is, is going to 100% change. The same thing with cancer. Like when you're going through chemo, I know from a guy standpoint, like your chances of being able to have kids goes way down. That also comes into as a factor. If you don't have kids, that's a big part of it too. I'm pretty sure an influencer is going through that. JC Marie Smith, I think that's one of the reasons they aren't able to have kids because her husband, I believe, going through it. was going through oh. it. I think he's perfectly healthy now, but I think that's one of the problems that they were having. Yeah. And I actually, I followed this other interabled couple called Squirmy and Grubs. I don't know what his specific disease is, but he's like fully in a wheelchair and they're going through IVF right now. There was something else that actually for the podcast, I thought you would like, I'll have to send you the link, but there was a woman talking about the reason why a man gets married or, or proposes. Oh, don't say this. This is this is a fresh wound for me. No, I didn't watch it yet, I, but I, I saw it and I grabbed the, the URL and I was they, like, oh, I'm going to watch this. They married the woman in front of them, not... Yes, yeah. that was the one I saw. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, and I can name countless people that oh, I would have been, maybe not wrong timing, but... <laughs> And so that was a fresh wound when I was like, wow, this is really great on my For You page right now. (laughs) I'm going to have to watch that because I saw it and I was like, ooh, I'm interested. The last thing I want to end on is this debate we're having on the podcast Instagram right now. And it's, do you think the godmother was obligated to say something when she Mm. had an inkling or had found out that information from the hospital? Do you think she should have told our interviewee? I feel like she did what she thought was right, which was put enough doubt into the mind. She did that without totally burning the bridge potentially. Although it sounded like the bridge was burned. She was like, good luck. And that was it. Yeah. I don't know if it was like my parents or an aunt or something. You know, when I went to college, I was in a relationship and I remember talking to my uncle and him being like, you're not going to make it past Thanksgiving. And I was like, watch me. And his response was, good luck. He was so right. He knew. I feel like that's where they're like, okay, well, like I don't want to fully intervene. I've given you enough of an idea of why you can get from what I've said that what's happening, something's, something's not right, but I'm not fully intervening. But our interviewee didn't get anything thing from the godmother at this standpoint. Yeah. No, yeah. I will say this to your point. She said, how do you know she has cancer? Which right, would, like, which to me would have been, oh. Maybe start asking some questions. And yeah. I think that's, to me, that's enough because I get it. Like there was a lot of wrong that happened. Mm-hmm. But to me, the person being like, how do you know? Should have been enough of a conversation red flag for me to be like, well, what do you mean? Especially like, because she was the first person to sort of confirm it. Oh, I was with her when she got her first diagnosis, when right. she was in college. She brought it up. So clearly looking 
looking back, mm-hmm. she was like, oh, this was a thing. But in the time, apparently it wasn't apparent enough. Yeah. Well, they were moving in together. I said this on the Instagram. It's easier said than done to yes. just blow up someone's relationship and be like, she doesn't have cancer. I mentioned that the parents were stuff that was being sent wasn't actually being sent. The family dynamic is already kind of rough. Mm-hmm. You don't want to totally blow up the whole dynamic altogether. Yeah. I feel like saying, are you sure about that is enough. If I passed you in the hallway and you're like, hey, I'm going to go pitch this idea to one of our bosses. I'm like, oh, are you sure about that? You're probably going to go, you know what I mean? Like, you're going to go, why? I'll be like, oh, I don't know. Just, you know, maybe think about it. And, yeah. then, and that's going to be enough for you to go, all right, I'm going to go to the drawing board for a second before I go talk to the bosses. I do that too because I always think we're about to get fired. Somebody will say something in a meeting and I'll email someone and be like, what did that mean? Are we are all they, getting fired? Are there layoffs coming? Let yeah. me know. So like, that's that's why I feel like she did enough. Okay, all right. This I don't some- know if that's popular opinion. but No, this is something to chew on because I think just because when I was in the middle of the interview, it didn't even cross my mind to think about that in the godmother side. Be like, mm-hmm. why didn't she just tell you? Because I think I was sort of like, well, she knew that they were moving somewhere and it's complicated. And they but- were in the middle of literally doing that. So like, yeah, you they, know. They were in the middle of it. That's why I feel like just being like, you sure? Yeah. Should have been enough of like a, mm, pump the brakes. Yeah. Let's just go back and can I see your medicine? Can I see the doctor's note? And then maybe you get to that point when she brought that up earlier where she starts hiding the stuff, which then makes you more suspicious and maybe everything kind of gets pushed up a year on things happening. I think what happened was inevitable, but at least maybe the grandma or the godmother's little like seed that she planted Mm would have gotten watered quicker. It would have happened faster. Yes. The godmother had an opportunity to expedite the process and didn't, which Mm -hmm. again, we only know these people as much as we've heard. And I think it's, again, I'll say this over and over. It's easier said than done to be like, I would have done this. I would have done that because we've all been in a complicated relationship or friendship where you make concessions for the sake of not keeping the peace, but just keeping the status quo. And not only that, this is in a not relationship setting, a show that I watch all the time. I talk about it, Big Brother. They do this all the time. It's like you see a group of five people that are like so strong together. You just plant seeds of doubt and you let them do the work. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people that make it far in that game see the like elite alliance that you need to break up and you start just two or three of them. You plant some seeds of doubt Mm -hmm. with something. I saw them talking to this person and they said this. And the only way that it blows up on that person is if they fact check together. But you've planted enough doubt that they won't. So then it just grows and becomes a whole thing. The godmother was trying to do that so that you plant enough doubt and she starts investigating a little bit more Mm -hmm. and maybe finds that stuff out. Exactly. Some mental minefields. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you so much, coworker (laughs) Justin, for your insight as usual. Mm -hmm. Again, we're so happy for you and Nicole who are expecting their baby girl. Stick around to hear my interview with Dr. David Pewter. I called him up right after I got off this interview with our interviewee and I was like, hey, I really need to learn more about how this looks in relationships specifically. He already has a lot of great resources about factitious disorder that are linked in this episode description. And so just as a disclaimer, he hasn't listened to this episode and he's in no way confirming or diagnosing B with factitious disorder. He's just here as a resource to help us learn more about it. I'm joined by Dr. David Pewter to talk about factitious disorder, which I've just now learned about from this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's great to join you. So for our listeners, can you just give like a broad definition of what factitious disorder is? Because of my role in a intensive outpatient partial program that actually treats a lot of factitious disorder called the MEND program in Redlands, California, which I'm still the medical director of. So I know somewhat about factitious disorder more than maybe most psychiatrists. Further, I find it very interesting. And so I think there's there's something just very fascinating about people who feign medical illness for some secondary gain, which is what factitious disorder 
disorder is. Usually in factitious disorder, they are not fully aware consciously of the motivating factors which are leading them to take on a sick role. And so if someone knew consciously, I'm going to take on a sick role and I'm doing this because I want to make money or I want a place to stay or I want some thing and I'm consciously aware that I'm lying, that would not be called um, factitious disorder. That would be called malingering. That would be the medical forensic term for purposefully lying about having a medical or psychiatric illness. It would be called malingering. We have tons of different ways to tell if someone is malingering. We have different ways of noticing patterns of behavior, but factitious disorder is a little bit differently. Uh, it's, it's different than purposefully lying. Factitious disorder is having some motivating factors that are leading you into an illness role that you're not fully aware of. And so I've seen a lot of people who, for example, their relationship is on the cusp of a breakup and they end up in the hospital, you know, luring this person back into a relationship with them out of sympathy and compassion, right? So that's a common sort of motivating factor. Now that person who's feigning illness may not fully know why they got sick. Maybe throughout their childhood, they had ways of interacting with their parents to get connection, to get attention through having a medical illness. And so they're repeating that pattern that they either saw or that they either practiced early on in their life. That's ringing a lot of bells from the person that I interviewed for this particular episode is they had actually broken up and very quickly after that, all of a sudden there was a cancer diagnosis. There was the breaking of their own bones, going to hospitals, so much so that this person even got blacklisted from a hospital. So that's very interesting to hear that this is a pretty, I mean, I'm sure it's not common, but that this isn't something that's just a particularly isolated issue. I think it's actually more common than you would imagine to gain connection in what I would say non-congruent expressions of emotion or medical illness. So for example, if I'm in a relationship and I feel sadness and I feel lonely, a clear emotional signal would be to say, I feel sad and lonely. A lot of people don't know how to give clear emotional signals or when they gave clear emotional signals growing up when they were a kid, they got messages that you're not allowed to feel sad, you're not allowed to feel angry. And so they have lots of defenses, psychological defenses and, and reasons for not giving a clear emotional signal, either avoiding the parent when they feel sad and lonely or getting upset and angry. So the anger's there, but they're, you, you know, the sad and lonely messages aren't there. So I think it's very normal to have incongruent expressions of emotion and medical illness in a relationship to engender connection. It's more abnormal for someone to break their bones or to pretend like they have cancer. And I would be curious as I'm like, even just hearing about this for the first time, did they break their bones consciously or were they doing that in a, a dissociative space or like breaking your own bones is pretty, it's a pretty violent act. It's actually very difficult to break your bones. So from what I was told through the person that I interviewed for this particular episode, I was told that this was a conscious effort to go to a hospital and be like, my bone is broken. Yeah. So there's something also called Munchausen mm -hmm. is, is where you like purposefully harm your own body to get some sort of secondary gain. There's Munchausen by proxy when like a very sick adult will make their kids ill, sometimes breaking their bones or sometimes injecting them with things that will make them sick or feeding them things that will make them sick. That's Munchausen by proxy, which is essentially child abuse. But sometimes these parents are not fully operating in a conscious way. It's like they're it's like they're playing out some sort of need for attention themselves or need to be a part of the medical system or need, you know, it's like they're playing out some sort of role with their kids, which is really sick. Something that you've mentioned now twice is you've mentioned dissociative or not being totally conscious. So is it 
pretty uncommon for this to go undiagnosed or how do people even figure out that this is something that they're suffering from? There are people who get misdiagnosed as having a psychiatric issue, like a psychological issue, who are actually having a physical issue. Even when I am consulted on a person, I am still as a doctor, you know, I was a doctor first before I became a psychiatrist. I'm still thinking through the lens of a doctor to try to figure out if the medical team is missing something. Okay. So for example, I got consulted on a, a person with supposed conversion disorder. The neurologist thought that this person was unable to move their legs due to a stress reaction. And so I came in there and I talked to the lady and I got a history that she was progressively walking more bent over and then had a surgery where she was laid flat for multiple hours. And then after the surgery, she lost sensation in her legs. And so I went to her nail beds of her toes and I put a, um, a pen across the nail bed of her toes and I pushed down with a force that would make anyone jump out of their bed. And I didn't do this to hurt her. I did this to be very clear in my own mind that she was fabricating that she had lost sensation in her legs. She did not jump. She did not move. She did not even know that she was in pain. And so I knew that there was an actual physical damage. I went and talked to the neurologist. They ran an MRI. They found out that she had severe spinal stenosis. She got surgery for it. So there are people who I get consulted on who have medical issues. They're just missing it. So you have to be very sort of open to being open, I guess. is It's like, you know, just because someone thinks something is psychological doesn't mean it's just psychological. If you're a person and you're like, oh man, maybe my wife is faking this stuff. And it's like, you don't know that. I wouldn't even know that. Right. And so, yeah, get some professionals to see your wife, some doctors, get some second opinions if you feel like they're not catching something. You know, you just mentioned somebody who said, I don't really know what's going on with my wife. And so I would want to know now, how would this affect somebody who is in a relationship with someone who is going through this or who is consciously doing it or unconsciously faking an illness for attention because of this disorder? Okay, like let's say if your loved one was taking on a sick role in order to gain connection with you. I think, you know, they obviously need some therapy and maybe you need some couples therapy. If it's as severe as they're saying they have cancer when they don't have cancer or they're breaking their bones, I would say, you know, the level of treatment that you need is probably a higher level of care than once a week therapy. You know, this is where like some some place like IOP partial that I run or there's IOP impartials in most cities across the US. But the level of care needs to be pretty high if someone is breaking their bones or saying that they have cancer. If they're doing it and they're conscious of it, usually they have a gain or something that they want. Like they want money. They want to control, for example, a child custody battle. They want something in particular. Somehow they've decided that doing this thing will allow them to get that gain, right? They're consciously lying, right? To say someone is malingering is to call them a liar, essentially. And as a doctor, I can tell you that I'm very cautious to call someone a liar because they could sue me. And so it, for me to call them a liar, because I'm not a forensic doctor, right? I'm not a forensic psychiatrist. So I'm I'm usually there to treat a particular person. They have some ailment, they have some depression, some anxiety. Calling someone a liar is, is a pretty big thing, you know, to do that for their medical issue. You put that in the chart. And then let's say one year later, they find out they have a real medical issue. They just hadn't figured out they could sue you. So I usually don't put malingering and no psychiatrist will put malingering in the chart. We may put some of the details that we consider suspicious. And then over time at the, the residency program that I'm associated with, if the person has come through the hospital enough, we may have dates and things that we noticed over and over and over again that lead us to an opinion that this person is just wanting something. And we put that opinion there, but we're very careful not to overly diagnose or be definitive because it, there's a risk for us. It's a tricky business. Um, what would they do? They would try to get some professional help. To what degree can you find someone in your community, someone in your location that 
know something about. When I had heard this, I mean, the only reference I had for this type of disorder was the Hulu series with Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Again, if you're a loved one and you're with somebody who you're like, you're going to these doctor's appointments, so I don't want to call you a liar. But if you're a loved one trying to get them help, I don't even know what the first step would be. Do you take them to a facility? Do you take them to a regular psychiatrist? Yes. And it depends on like, I guess, what resources, what your insurance will allow, what your financial resources will allow. But yeah, finding a good therapist would be a good place to start. You could be the first patient. You could go to a therapist. You could go to a psychiatrist and you could talk over your concern. You could get help yourself. Get yourself in the most healthy position you can so that you can help your loved one. If you have stress of this thing that is ongoing, processing that with a professional could be helpful, very helpful. And so that would be the first place to start. Unfortunately, you may be the first patient that goes to a therapist and your spouse or person and partner may not want to get treatment for a long time. And so sometimes it's just, wow, this is really helping me. I wish you had someone like this as well in your life. I wish that we could together process emotions in new ways. Can you connect outside of illness is one of the big things that I would work with them on. It's like, can you find connection outside of your significant other playing the illness role and you sort of giving them the attention only when they're ill? And this goes for parents too. Like imagine the only time as a kid you're getting attention is when you're when you're doing something wrong or you have a medical illness. What are you going to see more of as a parent? You're going to see more of those things. If the only time you give attention, attention is like a drug. It's like everyone desires attention and connection, right? Like that's very fundamental for human growth. People are going to do what they can to get more attention and connection from their parents or from their loved ones. And to not see that as a bad thing, it's adaptive. It's not codependency. It's like, it's like, of course, everyone needs connection. None of us were meant to live alone, isolated. You know, we're always meant to live in community connection with others. And we are starved for connection. We're, you know, we're like in a day and age where everyone's more and more isolated. Get that for yourself, maybe, and try to find things that the person used to enjoy that gave you a sense of connection. Try to do those things and try to give more of your attention for the good. That's really great advice because I could imagine being in that situation. If I'm looking at my partner and saying, you need to go to therapy, it almost feels like an attack. Like, oh my gosh, you think there's something wrong with me. But to take the first step and to actually step into a therapist's office and talk with a professional about what you're experiencing so that you can be a better partner for them and hopefully get the help that they need. I think that is a step that anybody could benefit from no matter what they think their partner may be going through. Thank you so much for this commentary. I really, really appreciate it. Seems like there's a lot of gray area. Seems like it's kind of hard to pin down the cause or why someone might do it. So thank you so much for bringing clarity to a really hazy subject. It's hazy because there's not a specific person in front of me that I'm walking with for months and months. It gets less hazy over time. Each patient teaches me something that I don't know, you know, and it's like always a surprise. It's never the same thing. If you want to work through it with your loved one, can you see whatever they're doing as adaptive, as helpful for connection? And can you see how you can connect outside of illness? Those are the big questions I would leave you with.